For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are sa being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we, are, what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we come to you as we prepare to hear your word, because we know that without your spirit, we would have no ears to hear or hearts to believe what you have to say to us. We ask that you remove any pride from our hearts or distractions from our minds that would keep us from being fed by your holy word. Lord, would you preach a better sermon than the one that I will preach today? Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae. If you don't know, uh, that is Latin for truth for Christ and the church. And can you guess what American university originally had this as their motto? Harvard, that's right. This, is, along with many others, are examples uh, that are found in Peter Greer's and Chris Horst's book titled Mission Drift, The Unspoken Crisis Facing Leaders, Charities, and Churches. Their book details many organizations that once began with a well-defined mission grounded in biblical values that over time became unrecognizable from their original mission. They warn in their book that without careful attention, faith-based organizations will inevitably drift from their founding mission. It's that simple, it will happen, they say. They intentionally use this word drift because they, these changes don't happen all at once. But as Christian organizations experience success, as financial stakes get higher, as pressure from the world mounts, over time, the drift can be seen as substantial. 
But it's not just universities that can experience mission drift. We also see it in churches, churches today, and even churches planted by the apostles. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul is responding to reports that the church he planted in the city of Corinth is beginning to see mission drift as worldly values begin to creep into the church, losing focus on the gospel, leading to divisions and all sorts of problems. We're able to read about the beginning of the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, and we can see that the Lord gave Paul great success through his ministry, even though he faced opposition. All the things Jesus said that were going to happen as the kingdom of God went forth came to fruition in Corinth. The good news of the gospel called many people of low esteem, people from different backgrounds, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, rich and poor, all types of people heard the gospel, repented and believed, and the church was gathered in Corinth. Yet, over time, the upside-down values of the kingdom were slowly being turned back around in favor of what was comfortable and natural to them, causing the church to lose sight of the gospel that saved them and divide their fellowship. If this can happen in a church planted in Corinth by an apostle, it can happen to a church planted in Castleton. Therefore, this morning, I want us to examine Paul's response to the divisions in the Corinthian church so that we too can be on guard against drifting away for the centrality of the gospel in our ministry. We'll look at Paul's response to this drift in Corinth in three sections, if you're taking notes. First, we'll see the preaching of the cross, verses 18 through 25, and this will be our longest section. Second, we'll see the people of the cross in verses 26 through 29. And third, our pride in the cross in verse 30. And 31. And my prayer today is that the believers gathered at Castleton Community Church never grow tired of hearing the word of the cross, that we never forget that we are people of the cross, and that we always find our boast in the cross. Let's begin looking at verse 18 at Paul's preaching of the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. As I mentioned, Paul is responding to reports of divisions in the church, and he took great care that he took great care of planting and discipling. Well, what were they dividing over? Well, the context in 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that they were making value distinctions among themselves, taking pride in their association with certain leaders in the church who the Lord used in their lives. Some were on team Paul, some were on team Apollos, some were on team Peter, and the most pious of the bunch, they would say, we're on team Jesus. These sort of distinctions mirrored what was often happening in the culture around them. The Corinthians valued the art of rhetoric, and they were used to hearing professional speakers who gained a following for more of how they spoke rather than the message they were communicating. People would then attach themselves to the impressive, to the wise, to the popular of their time, so they too could in turn look impressive by association. I wonder if that sounds familiar to our culture. 
But these worldly values have no place in the community of the people who follow Jesus. For as we've been learning all throughout our study of Luke, Jesus was pleased to associate with the lowly. Jesus welcomed the nobodies of society. Jesus wasn't afraid of being friends with people who would limit his social standing rather than build it up. Therefore, Paul reminds the church early uh, in verse 17 and then in 18 as we read, that they were not saved because of Paul's gift of persuasion or eloquent words, the metrics that the world used, but through the preaching of a message that was considered foolish to the world, a message that confounds the worldly metrics, the message of the cross. Which begs the question, why is the word of the cross, the message about Christ's death and resurrection, considered foolishness by the world? Why is the world, why is the word of the cross so polarizing? We see in verse 19 that it's foolish to the world ultimately because it's by God's design. In verse 19, Paul is referencing an Old Testament passage in Isaiah when God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. In Isaiah's time, there were many prophets who thought they were wise in discerning what the Lord was doing, and they scoffed at the word of the Lord that came through the prophet Isaiah about an impending attack on Jerusalem. They were wise in their own eyes, thinking they had everything figured out. And so God destroys their human wisdom by doing exactly as Isaiah had prophesied. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God regularly shatter human pride and pretense. He humbles the proud and is pleased to use the lowly to bring out his will in the world. He does this so we remember that he alone is the source of all wisdom and strength. He does this so that we give him the glory rightfully due to his name. The pursuit of wisdom apart from God will in the end prove foolish, but seeking wisdom under the fear of the Lord will prove fruitful. And God ultimately shatters all human pride when he brings about salvation of sinners, not through human wisdom or achievement or law-keeping, but through Christ, the perfect Son of God, crucified on a Roman cross. It's maybe lost on us today, but the message of the cross or the, the symbol of the cross itself was complete, utter foolishness in the first century. The cross was the symbol of great shame, a brutal means of Roman torture, an execution only reserved for the most heinous of criminals. Therefore, claiming that someone who was hung on a cross as your leader of this upstart religion was regarded as an absolute absurdity in Greco-Roman society. It was utter foolishness to think victory was won by giving up your life rather than taking it. What absurdity to think that shame is removed by identifying with a shameful death. What insanity it was to the Greek conscience to choose to suffer in the world in the name of a poor crucified Jew from Nazareth. But it wasn't just foolishness to the Greeks, the Gentiles, but also to the Jews at that time. To them, it was an absolute blasphemy to hold that the promised Messiah would be one that would be cursed and hung on a tree. For Deuteronomy 29 says that being hung on a tree was a sign that you were being cursed by God. 
the cross made no logical sense to the Greeks and no religious sense to the Jews. According to human wisdom, the message of the cross was utter foolishness. Now in our time, the offensiveness of the symbol of the cross may be lost in our culture. We see it everywhere. We see it in churches. We see it on necklaces. We see it tattooed on, on arms. But the message of the cross certainly continues to be considered foolishness or maybe nothing more than a motivational story of sacrifice. Over the past couple weeks, uh, my wife Jessica and I had the pleasure of hosting her parents uh, who live in Florida come stay with us. And every time they stay with us, I'm reminded and continually amazed at their story of faith. Both my in-laws immigrated from, uh, to the U.S. from China to pursue graduate degrees uh, and high-paying jobs that would honor their families and, and bring uh, much honor to their families, which is a foundational um, um, in many Asian cultures. Yet when the word of the cross was preached to my in-laws, they believed. And shortly after, my father-in-law left his high-paying job that he spent years achieving in order to pursue full-time ministry and to go to seminary. And my mother-in-law left her job and joyfully followed. After hearing and believing the message of Jesus, their priorities changed. And the power of this saving message deeply transformed them so they no longer saw their value through the eyes of the world or the values of their culture, but through the cross. And when they told their parents what they were doing, their parents were utterly appalled and confused on why they would do something so foolish. They heard questions like, why would you throw away your entire life's work? Why would you choose a job where you have to live off of people's charity? Why would you bring shame upon the family? To them, it made no logical sense and was even considered unloving what they were doing. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe the word. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God even to transform culture, to transform their values. Now, while many of us have not experienced maybe this cultural pressure like this, there are different pressures that tempt us to drift away from the message of the cross because of the allure of the wisdom of the world. We easily can be seduced by the allure of relevance, either from those inside or outside the church. We can easily be tempted to adopt popular human philosophies or religious discipline that appear virtuous, but ultimately do not lead to the cross. Look what Paul says in verse 20 and following. He asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Here, Paul asks some very poignant rhetorical questions that drive home the point 
that all the systems of the world, all the religious experts, all the masters of communication, all the worldly influencers and podcasters are in the end the ones who will be seen as foolish. For God in his wisdom did not design us to know him through our own capabilities or skills, but through the preaching of the message of the cross. Now, to be clear, Paul is not denying the presence of human gifting, nor is he rejecting all logic or human systems that uh, benefit the well-being of of humanity. But what he is saying is this, that all human wisdom, all philosophies, all religious systems, no matter how much they contribute to human flourishing on earth, will be seen as foolish without the knowledge of the God of the universe that we see here in the scriptures. None of our systems are able to make a soul right with God. Uh, This weekend, Americans across the country will celebrate American independence by blowing things up uh, so we can breathe in more smoke. You know, it makes sense. It's all good. Yeah. Our family, uh, this Friday, we enjoyed some some fireworks and some music uh, at Connor Prairie. Saw a lot of you there. That was uh, a really wonderful time. It was great. We got to see fireworks and lightning at the same time, kind of back and forth. It was was quite something. and while, we're, again, during this, this weekend, uh, we, we don't celebrate everything in America's history, uh, there's, but there are certainly lots to celebrate. Yet, no matter how much we celebrate the virtues of democracy or American ideals or how wonderful the free market system may be, we must acknowledge that no system of man, no matter how successful or virtuous, will lead men and women to the cross. What it actually will do will ultimately lead to man's self-glorification. Any human system or wisdom ultimately leads to self-glory if God is not at the center of it. And the cross is where self-glory goes to die. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him, which is a completely countercultural way of life in any culture. Yet the temptation is always present to dress up the cross with an ornaments of the world to make it more acceptable or to our sensibilities or lessen its demands to make it more appealing. Yet we see in our text that Paul does nothing of the sort. He does not run away from the horrors of, of the cross in that day. He says, though, we preach Christ crucified. And later, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Jews, they wanted more signs to confirm the message. The Gentiles wanted to fit into their categories of wisdom. But Paul preached Christ crucified alone, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The preaching of the cross is an equal opportunity offender. But it is also an equal opportunity offer. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul preached the message of the cross knowing that it was foolish to the world. He did not trust his rhetorical skills or his gift of persuasion, but he trusted the message that was given to him by God. It was God's message and it was his job just to share it, trusting that the Spirit would move and that God would call all types of people to himself through that message. 
that God would open their eyes to see that Jesus, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power the Jews were seeking, the wisdom the Greeks were longing to be impressed by, is ironically found in the humility and the weakness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for the sins of the world. God's power is shown most clearly at the cross of Christ. So what does this matter for us? How does it relate to what we do here at Castleton Community Church? Well, Paul's words instruct us that our goal every Sunday should keep, we should keep the cross of Christ as the central theme of our worship. The gospel should be central in our singing, central in our praying, and central in our preaching. If we are going to avoid drifting away from our mission to lead people to know and trust Jesus, we need to resolve to continue to deliver the message of what Christ has done on the cross. And I'll be honest, there is always pressure to come up with something new, something exciting. But we must believe that hearing the gospel of Jesus every week is the means God uses to grow and equip His church. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't come up with new songs that glorify the cross or that we should empty each sermon of illustrations or application and make it as boring as possible. No, that's not, the gospel is never boring. But gospel preaching is committed to saying essentially the same thing week after week, coming to the cross from as many angles as the scriptures give us. And when we do this, we'll realize that Jesus meets us in all our circumstances, in all our trials, and we will see that Jesus in his word is sufficient to bring us to God. I love this quote from Pastor Kevin DeYoung. He says, the secret of the gospel is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about all that God has already done for us. I think that's true. Church, I hope that you never grow tired of hearing the gospel preached each Sunday, that you delight to hear the good news that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, died for your sins so that we can become children of God, and that just as we share in His death like His, we also will share in a resurrection like His. And church, I ask that you would pray that anybody who ever stands behind this pulpit in, in this church would preach the cross and Him crucified, that Christ would be the central message of every sermon that comes from this pulpit. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The first remedy Paul gives the Corinthians to address their divisions is the preaching of the cross. But second, we see Paul address their divisions by reminding them that they are people of the cross. Look back at verses 26 through 29 with me in our second point, the people of the cross. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Last month, I was able to gather with six uh, friends that I live with in college uh, at Michigan State University. It was the first time we had all been together in probably five years or so. Um, a lot of us had moved away after college uh, to pursue our careers, to start families. Uh, and uh, again, we have all, again, done very well. Again, it was really encouraging to hear one of my friends that he's a, now a practicing orthopedic surgeon. Another one works for the Department of Homeland Security. Another is finishing up his PhD in education. Each of us may be well-expected careers, impressive resumes. But as you can imagine, we didn't address each other with the titles of doctor or agent or pastor, although I do believe uh, one of my friends jokingly called me reverend uh, at one point, <laughs> which is, is what it is. Uh, no, we, we, we talked to one another like we were back in college, right? Recounting embarrassing stories that had not seen the light of day for, for many years. Uh, like, like the time I lost my, my keys uh, and blocked everybody, and we had like a two-lane, we had seven cars, but two lanes, and I was the last one, and I decided, you know, lost my keys, and Nobody could get out, and so uh, many were late to a class uh, that day. Many of you know that there is nothing quite as humbling as catching up with friends or family members who knew you at your lowest moments. Even after you've put many years of respectable conduct between you and past foolishness, they're always quick to remind you of what you were like back in those days. All right, maybe you've even heard the phrase, hey, remember where you came from, right? It's a phrase that's often used to put someone's success into perspective and to combat maybe an inflated ego. And we see here in these verses that Paul humbles the Corinthians by reminding them of where they came from. He calls them to consider their lives at the time of their conversion, when they heard the word of the cross and believed. Not many of them boasted in their status that they were now using to make distinctions among themselves. Paul is essentially saying, hey, listen, church, I remember when I preached the gospel to you. I remember your standing in society and the hopelessness that you carried with you. Not many of you were wise as you claimed to be. Not many of you were strong by worldly measurements. Not many of you were born into wealthy families with influence and money maybe that you now flaunt. Now, to be sure, Paul is not insulting them, but, but pointedly reminding them that God called them to himself when they were weak, not when they were strong in the eyes of their peers. And isn't this how God has always worked, how he always has chosen his people? Look at Deut Deuteronomy 7, we see his reasons for choosing the people of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And I think we can easily forget who we were when God called us to himself. Many of us were children with little social standing. Many of us were middle schoolers, maybe in need of deodorant. <laughs> Many of us were immature teenagers looking for an identity. Some of us were foolish college students just looking for a good time. Maybe some of us were grumpy grown-ups looking for a nap. 
no matter when you heard the word of the cross and believed, it wasn't because of your wisdom or your status, but because of God who, chose, who chooses you because he loves you. And he chooses to turn what the world values upside down, leaving no grounds for boasting so that God alone gets the glory he deserves. Now, it's really important to note that Paul says not many and not none. For the cross of Christ is not just a message for the weak, the lowly, the poor in the eyes of the world, but it is for everyone. And God is seeking, is not seeking to give a badge of honor to the lowliest or a medal to the poorest of us, but he is removing any grounds of pride in the lowly and any pride in the exalted in society and unites them at the cross by his grace. God's grace can reach anyone and all of us who believe have nothing to stand on but the grace of Christ revealed to us through the gospel, the word of the cross. Yet we see in the Corinthian church that when the Corinthians took their eyes off the cross, they forgot they were people of the cross, which then in turn affected their fellowship with one another. Instead of focusing on how the cross of Christ unites people from every class, race, uh, ability, they focused on themselves and made divisions based upon human categories, emptying the message of the cross of its power in their fellowship. The Christian community started to look just like the world, which is neither powerful nor compelling to a watching world. The cross needs to be the center of our preaching, and it also needs to be the center of our fellowship. Well, how can we tell whether the cross is the center of our fellowship? How can we make sure that we remember that we are people of the cross? Well, church, I want you to think for a moment with me. How many relationships do you have in the church that you would maintain if it wasn't for the gospel? How many relationships do you have that you know you have common interests, other things with, that don't necessarily revolve around the gospel? How does the cross shape your relationships in the church? And I would argue, as Mark Dever argues in his book, Compelling Community, when he says this, when Christians unite around something other than the gospel, they create a community that would likely exist even if God didn't. As a modern-day Tower of Babel, that community glorifies their strength instead of God's. Now, I want to encourage you, church, that I see many relationships in this church that I do not think would be possible without the gospel. Uh, it is a joy to see, especially at Week of Wonder and the community cookout of people from every age and stage uh, of, of background serving the community and uh, for the hope of making the gospel known to one another. And it's such an encouragement to hear the ministry uh, of Titus 2, which is our women's discipleship ministry, where women from every different backgrounds get together to pursue Jesus. They may not have all the same interests, they may not have all the same skills or even the same opinions on certain issues of, of parenting or raising their family, but they all share the cross in common and can learn from one another as they look to Jesus. Yet, brothers and sisters, we must be on guard, for we can easily forget that we are united first because of the cross and not because we are the same age and stage 
or pick the same schools for our kids or share the same opinions about the news of the day or equally socially equipped to carry on a conversation. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you can't be friends uh, in the church with people who are the same age and stage with you or same income bracket or share the same opinions on the news of the day. But we should be aware of cutting off fellowship from brothers and sisters who share the gospel and not because of, because of worldly distinctions that will all pass away and will be brought to shame at the coming of Jesus. So I want you to ask yourselves, what would relationships look like if the gospel was removed? Just like our preaching of the cross ought to confound the world, our fellowship as people of the cross ought to leave the world scratching its collective head. As the world in his wisdom looks in and wonders, how can a people like this, from all different backgrounds, live in harmony with one, with one another? How can they bear one another's burdens? How can they confront sin in love? How can they forgive offenses and not make worldly distinctions among themselves? And when they ask or when they see, we get to point, not to ourselves, but we get to point to the cross of Christ. This whole section uh, that Paul is, should we see here, he's likely adapting this language from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which leads us into our next point. I want to read this for you. Jeremiah 29, or 3, 29 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. God chose the weak, the foolish, the poor in the eyes of the world, so that we would not boast in ourselves, but that we would boast in the Lord, which leads to our final point, our pride in the cross. Look at verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul has made his case that because God is the one who works salvation in our hearts, we have nothing in ourselves to boast about at the foot of the cross. Yet since God has united us to Christ, we do have something to boast in. We take pride in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not pride that leads to our own glory, but leads others to marvel at the glory of Christ. Paul tells us in this passage that because of God, we who believe are in Christ Jesus. We are united to him. And when we are united to Christ by faith, he doesn't just give us wisdom of the world or power or riches, but Christ, the wisdom of God, gives to us what? Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption found only in heaven. Before we knew God, we walked in unrighteousness, guilty before a holy God. Before we knew Christ, we were being conformed to the image of the world that was on the road to destruction. Before we knew Christ, we were slaves to our sins, slaves to the approval of man, slaves to our passions and our pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. 
of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is our story. This is what we boast about. We boast in the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ alone who died that we might be forgiven and who was raised to life that we can have hope of eternal life. And therefore, we should be people who are quick to share all the stories about God working in our lives. I love the phrase, what evidence of grace do you get to see throughout the day? Because God is always working. There's always ways in which we see him at work and we ought to be quick to boast in all those things and what God is doing, how he rescued us by his grace and how we are all eagerly awaiting his return. And while we wait for our eternal home, friends, let's be a church that preaches the cross, that knows that we are people of the cross and delight to make much of the cross to all who have ears to hear. Brothers and sisters, we've seen in this passage that it is not good that divisions were being made among believers. It was not good that they made distinctions among themselves based on worldly terms. Yet in closing... There's something we cannot ignore. We can't ignore that this passage tells us that the word of the cross divides. It divides humans into two ultimate categories. Those who hear the word of the cross and see it as folly, and those who hear the word of the cross and receive it as the power of God by faith. So which side of that division do you find yourselves on today? Is it foolish Or is it the wisdom and the power of God? The word of the cross leaves no middle ground. You cannot be agnostic about the message of the cross. And my appeal to those who may find themselves here today skeptical of the word of the cross, I would appeal to you to set aside your worldly wisdom, put down your strength, humble yourself at the foot of the cross, And think, just maybe for today, that what is in this word is actually true. That Jesus promises that all who come to him, he will never cast out. Friend, you will never find a greater wisdom. You will never find a greater love. No greater purpose in this life. No man-made story can ever match what the Lord has done in Christ Jesus. When you humble yourself at the foot of the cross. And so, friend, I'd ask you, humble yourself today. Don't wait another day. For this word also tells us that there is coming day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it will be either in joyful worship or fearful regret. And so, I challenge you to put your trust in him and find no greater wisdom, no greater love, and no greater purpose, and no greater joy than sitting at Jesus' feet at the foot of the cross. And to all those who have been called by God and have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, let us keep our eyes fixed on the cross. Keep your relationships centered around the cross and only boast in the cross. For on that final day, all we have to offer is the cross of Christ. And may Castling Community Church always be a place where sinners can come and find rest at the foot of the cross. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank you for this message, this word of the cross. We thank you for the deep love you displayed for us by sending your only son to die in our place. We ask you that you would humble us today, help us to see where we have chosen to exalt ourselves rather than you, where we have made distinctions among ourselves and have taken even our relationships off the cross. Would you give us the gift of repentance that we might walk in the wisdom of the cross and give you glory for all that you've done for us in Christ. And and we ask that if there's anyone here this morning who is holding on to their pride, would you open their eyes to see the power and the wisdom of Christ crucified for them, that they would believe and find rest in you today and forevermore. And we ask all this in the name of our risen Lord. Amen.